Welcome to Be The Light Podcast with C.B. Barflow, lead pastor of Denver Beacon. I am your host, Pastor Ty Morris. Our desire is to lead the lost, the broken, and the hopelessness of our communities, to be light bearers in our city set on a hill. Now tune in for our sermon series. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to continue in our series. Today is the final message in our series in Luke chapter 9, the series entitled Seeing Jesus Clearly. And we're going to read our final six verses in the chapter, verses 57 through 62. And what's cool about today's time together in the Lord is we've spent the whole fall, about 11 or 12 weeks together walking through Luke chapter 9, and the whole series has been about seeing Jesus clearly. This chapter has afforded us a new revelation of Jesus. We've seen Jesus turn his teaching and his work, not just to the natural, but now to the supernatural. We've seen Jesus be clearly identified in word and in deed as the Son of God, as the Messiah to come. We've also seen Jesus reveal himself in his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. This whole chapter has been about revelation. And yet, revelation that does not provoke action is just information, and in and of itself, it's not worth much. I never want us to be a church that's just so high and mighty. All the teaching is deep and wow, I never saw that in the text. And holy smokes, did you know that? That's so amazing. And then none of us change in the process. The Bible tells us that we are to be washed with the water of the word, not just to dip our toes into it. Amen. The the goal for every believer is to get revelation that then spurs action and then the cycle repeats. We are to grow and to change in our understanding and and in our likeness of Jesus Christ. And so today, we finally get a good old-fashioned provocation to action in this message. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, and it reads like this. As they, that's Jesus and his disciples and the growing people around them, were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he, that's Jesus, said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say well, farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The title of our message today, if you're taking notes right across the top of your page, I'm going to encourage you to write The Road of Wrong Responses. We're going to talk today about the most common wrong responses to Jesus' invitation to follow him and to be a disciple. These are the three most common ways in which you and I, not just these men here, say no to Jesus. And you might say, well, don't you worry, Pastor. I've done already said yes. I can't say no to Jesus. (laughs) Hold up. I promise you that this road of wrong responses is a road that you've traveled and still sometimes travel on today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for the great and glorious opportunity we get to hear your word. Father, today I ask that you would wash us in this word, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears to hear that we might be transformed in the mind and renewed in the life and that we might become more like you. Now, Father, if there be anything in me that is unlike you, I ask that you'd remove it from me. Lord, I preach today not so that people see me, but that they see you. Holy Spirit, have your way in the room. Take dominion today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to see the picture here of what's happening. You remember that Jesus and his disciples have just begun to turn their focus. We learned in last week's message that Jesus, while doing the work that he was assigned to in Galilee, had changed his face. He had turned his face, metaphorically, but probably also physically, as he began to change directions towards Jerusalem, which meant that he was beginning the end of his ministry. He was preparing for the fulfillment of the mission that he had come 
to undertake. And what happened was as he and the disciples began to walk, they entered into a town and the town rejected them. The disciples were rebuked, but Jesus kept on moving. And what I love about this is that Jesus never stops moving forward in the mission of saving the lost. Amen. That's good news for someone like me. He's never been deterred, never been distracted. He's never been like, he is too stubborn. No, thank God that Jesus has never seen me like the rest of the world has seen me. Amen. He continues to move forward in spite of obstacle, in spite of unfaithfulness, in spite of rejection. Jesus just keeps moving forward. And what I love about the Bible is when it tells me about Jesus' moving, it always tells me that there's a momentum around the movement. Every time throughout the text we find Jesus and his disciples going somewhere or doing something, we find that the crowds begin to grow. And we know that every time Jesus transitions from one place to another, he gathers people from the previous place, people who've been affected by his ministry and his work, maybe people who were healed, saved, forgiven, delivered, touched, just found him awe-inspiring, and they begin to let go of what they had and follow him towards what's to come. And we know that this portion of scripture right here is no different. Jesus and his disciples are making their way and a crowd is beginning to gather. And in this crowd, we find that people begin to shout out to Jesus and Jesus engages with them. That's another thing I like about Jesus. He never seems to yell at people because they're out of order. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's not like Jesus is without order, amen? But when people are earnestly seeking him or calling upon him, Jesus engages with them. He never says, like, let's table that conversation for later. Do you know what I mean? He's never so fancy where his armor bearers have to tell you to hush, hush. Y'all with me for just a second? Jesus is walking and they're like, master. And he's like, yes. He's willing to take diversions on an ongoing basis because you know what? The mission is not encumbered by the people. The people are the mission for Jesus. And that's really the way that every church should be. Every pastor should feel that way. There should never be a pastor or a church or a leader or a ministry that feels burdened by the folks. The folks are the point. Y'all with me? I meet leaders all the time and they're just like, I'm just trying to figure out how to get these people to help me do my thing. What's your thing? Your thing is them. In fact, the way that you've probably heard me, if you've had a chance to sit down with me, you've heard me share this with you. I'm not here for you to join my team so that I can accomplish my mission. I'm here to join your team so we can accomplish the mission of Jesus in your heart. Amen. Which means if it takes you and I a long time, cool. Amen. And if you and I have to make some diversions, good. That's the point. And so here's Jesus walking down the road with his disciples and the crowd is gathering. And the Bible says that three men engage with Jesus in this portion of the journey. And each one of them is, 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 is for lack of a better term, wrong. We're going to talk about the three most common ways we get it wrong. And if you're writing notes, here they are. The first one is the overpromise. Many of us oftentimes overpromise in our relationship to God and, for being honest, to other people. The second one is the undercommitment. A lot of times we, we want Jesus, but we don't want to go all the way like that with Jesus. And then the third one, this one happens all the time, it's the look back. It's I want to see Jesus, but I just can't seem to let go of that. So let's dive into the text and talk about the overpromise. Verse 57 says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Yeah, ever heard somebody say that to you? You ever had somebody promise you that? I will love you forever. Am I talking to anybody here? No matter what happens, I'm so in love with you. This is perfect. I'll never leave you. This is all we've ever wanted. Our dreams are coming true forever and ever. Amen. You ever hear this? And you're like, oh, I found my true love at 14. It's done. Yes. Isn't it interesting that through the hubris of youth, we're able to make promises like that and mean it. Amen. At 14, you knew that you were in love. This is it. I don't have to look any further. She's perfect. She can do algebra. I can't. We were meant to be together. And I want to tell you, if you're 14 and you've fallen in love, believe me, things will change. Because you're different at 14 than you are when you're 14 and a half. You're just different. <laughs> things, things change, man. 
The truth of the matter is that it really is hubris. It's youthful hubris. It's vanity. It's pride that makes promises like that. This man is calling out to Jesus, making a promise that, frankly, there's no way he could understand if he could fulfill. Even if Jesus is not the Messiah, but a good teacher, are you really willing willing and able to follow anybody forever? I mean, I don't know about you, but... I don't have anybody in my life who's been with me all the days of my life save for my mother. Amen? And I've worked real hard to be an unpleasant son over the course of my life. I was 19, I was 18 years old, I was a freshman, and I went through what, let me tell you a phase that my poor mother will cringe at, but she'd also be happy I addressed it. Um, for some reason, the sophomore year of my freshman year, in, sophomore season of my freshman year in college, sophomore Second semester of freshman year, I decided that I would only refer to my parents by their first names. Don't you already dislike me? She called me and I was like, look, Maureen, there are two adults here. She's like, adults? We're paying a tuition, kid. I don't know what happened. If she was a regular person, she would have turned her back on me. Amen. But she's a mother, and mothers are to be venerated in Jesus' name. The truth of the matter is is that she is probably one of the only people that's been with me from the first day of my life all the way and will be until the last day of hers. But so many of us make promises like that, that have that kind of weight and that duration without fully understanding what it would mean. You've been in a relationship where someone's promised they'll love you forever, and you knew that they weren't going to. You've been at a job and someone said, I love it here, I'll never quit. (laughs) And you were like, oh my gosh, they're quitting tomorrow. (laughs) I've led a church full of people with volunteers who have come alongside me and said, Pastor, I've found my home, I will never leave. And I had a mentor that says, the moment they tell you that, be ready for their departure. And here's why. Vanity makes a show of the following. This man cries out to Jesus in a voice that towers over the crowd to make a promise there's no way he could fulfill. He doesn't fool Jesus, but he thinks he might be fooling everyone else. This man doesn't even want to follow Jesus. You ready? This man wants to be seen following Jesus. The most common response that most of us make to the gospel is an overcommitment that's not based in heart, but it's based in pride. You said, well, don't worry, that's not me. I've never overcommitted to Jesus. I am struggling. Maybe. Hold on. Hold on. Perhaps you've done a really good job of putting on a good face in your faith. I was talking the first service about um, how in some of our traditions the experience has precedence over the understanding. I was raised and called into ministry in a charismatic church. You've heard me talk about this before. And we used to do this wonderful thing where, um, because in some of the traditions, remember, uh, right gospel tells us that once we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes residence in our heart. That's what the gospel says. He, He indwells the heart of every believer. There's not a secondary moment. You don't say yes to Jesus and then make an appointment with the Holy Spirit for six months out and then hopefully he'll fill you. It happens then. Amen? But some traditions don't believe that. They believe you say yes to Jesus and then hopefully you'll get fire baptized with the Holy Spirit. Y'all hear this before? And I'm going to be honest with you, I like that term. I love it. I love fire, fire baptized. Yes, please, right? And I've been in charismatic settings. We've been in church before where the pastor would say this. Now, who would be ready to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? The music is playing, right? And you're just like, yes. And he says, come down to the altar and And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's a pretty compelling invitation. And many of us would run down to the altar. Yes. Not knowing what it meant. Because in an invitation like that, it's theologically incorrect. So we're making a commitment, responding to an invitation, without knowledge of what the invitation would mean. Y'all with me? You tracking with me? There are many times in our faith we say yes to a question we don't understand. And we'd run down to the altar for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and we'd have everybody lined up. Tell me if you've seen this before. Everybody lines up, and the pastor has begun down here. I'm talking that the pastor starts down here, and you're down here, blissfully down here. And you're like this, yes, Lord, you're singing, right? And you're trying to look holy because everybody's doing a certain thing, and so you're doing the thing, right? 
And then for a moment, you, you want to know what's going on. Y'all with me? And so you do this. And you see him down here working. See, if you've never been to a charismatic church, you, you know what I'm talking about. You, we should take a field. Never mind. Um, and you look down the row, and the pastor is reaching his hands, and he's sweaty. And I mean sweaty. Now, I like a good sweaty preacher from time to time. But something happens in the charismatic circle when the power of the Holy Spirit falls. He's soaking wet, and it's gross. And he's laying hands on people, right? And they're falling down. And so here you are, ready to receive the, yes. But you can't back out now, can you? Because you've overpromised. You've said yes to a thing you don't fully understand, and it would be weird for you to be like, change my mind about the Holy Spirit thing. You can't do that. So here you are, and he starts making his road down. If you've ever been here, if you've ever been here, you know that this encounter is strange. Amen? Even when I'm praying for you, I'm ever mindful of how awkward it is for two people to come together in agreement in the Holy Spirit. I've laid my hands on people before (laughs) in this church. And I've walked up and they've been worshiping. And I've touched them and it's scared the bejesus out of them. They're like this, you know, they're blissfully in the presence of the Lord. And I put my hand on their foot and they freak out. I'm like, well, that doesn't look holy. What are we doing? Here's the problem, is that so many of us are led by our emotion. Jesus comes by, the spirit moves, the word goes forth, the worship comes up, and they say the blessings come down, and we're all in, and we say, yeah, out of emotion, not out of understanding, out of desire and expectation and experience, we say, I I want all of it, I promise, and I'm all the way in, and we overpromise to a thing we can't understand, and then when things don't work out well, we're stuck. And so Jesus responds to the other promise of this man who really doesn't know what he's promising, and he makes a hard declaration. He says, you'll follow me wherever I go, wherever. Hey, foxes in the ground have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying this, you don't even know what you're asking. Because following me will be difficult. You might think you can follow me all the days of your life, but there will be some days in your life where you can't even trace me. How will you follow me? There will be some days in your life you will think you are in hell. You will wonder where I am. It's not easy. It's hard work. Are you sure about this? And what he's doing to a man who's moved by emotion, a man who wants to be seen as a follower, is creating the understanding around the uncertainty of following Jesus. Now hear me. It's not uncertain about what happens when you follow Jesus in the spirit realm. Amen. You give your life to Jesus, put your trust in Jesus, you are secure in Jesus. I'm going to say it to you once and for all so you understand our theological stance. If you are saved, you are always saved. Now hear me. I didn't say once saved, always saved. I said if saved, always saved, which means this. If you really give your whole life to Jesus, then he won't give it back. Amen. And it will get really hard. And it will still be worth it. And he says, understand this. Once you're mine, you're mine. An eternal life is yours. A reward is coming. One day I will present you before our dad. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. No uncertainty there. But here, right here, in this life that you live until the day I take you there, quite a bit of uncertainty. Are you sure? And what I love about this is Jesus paints this picture of uncertainty, and then immediately in the next verse, in verse 58, he says, the son of man has no place to raise his hand, lay, lay his head. And then in verse 59, he turns to another man and says, you should follow me. Now, I need you to see this picture because this is why the second wrong response from this man is the undercommit. Here's what happens. Jesus is walking down the road and a man makes a promise that he cannot fulfill and Jesus responds with truth. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Following me is incredibly difficult. There will be days where you'll wish, maybe I shouldn't follow him. It might be easier to just still be a sinner. Am I talking to anybody? 
Some of you are like, my friends who are terrible don't suffer like I do. Am I talking to y'all? Yeah. He says, it's hard hard work to follow me. And then immediately he turns his attention to another guy. Can you imagine? Remember, get in the story with me. I love a good old Bible story. Immediately there's another guy and he's like, yeah, man, it's going to be so uncertain. You better know what you're asking. And Jesus says, you should follow me. And he's like, what? No, me. No, him. Let's talk about him. Don't invite me. Why? I don't want to. Can you imagine Jesus turning to you to say, it's going to be really hard. Now it's your turn to follow me. Through that lens of uncertainty, Jesus makes the only, in this whole story, concerted invitation from him to one person. You see, the first person that we talk about in this story and the last person we're going to talk about in this story both respond to Jesus unsolicited. But this man is personally asked by Jesus for him to follow Jesus. And he does it right after he says how hard it is to follow Jesus. I love this about Jesus. He's not afraid to have hard conversations. Jesus is not afraid for you to say, I'm not sure I can do this. And he's going to say, I'm sure for the both of us, but you're going to have to trust me the whole way through. Jesus never lies to get us on his team. Jesus never says, you'll never, ever stress. Just be with me. That's not the promise Jesus makes. He's honest with us. And through the honesty, he says, you should still follow me. Which is why the man responds as he does. Verse 59. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, if you read this, without the historical context, you will think that this man is asking of a noble thing. You'll think this man is asking a very honest thing. Lord, my father has just passed away. And I want to follow you. But surely you'll have to let me put him in the ground at least. But that's not what he's asking. See, we read this without an understanding of the cultural context within which Jesus is operating. The language that the man uses, let me go and bury my father, is a Hebrew euphemism. It's meant to mean this. After I receive my inheritance. Remember, in the Jewish culture, all men receive their inheritance from their father. That is the goal of Jewish fatherhood, to pour an inheritance into the next generation. When there are two sons... The first son gets the big portion, and the second son gets a smaller portion. But there's always a portion for inheritance. And the language of let me bury my father is as if to say, soon and hopefully soon, oof, no, one day my father will pass away, and then I will receive what is rightfully mine. So when the man turns to Jesus and says, let me bury my father, he's not saying, sir, I want to trust you, but I'm still grieving the loss of the man who raised me, and I'd like to honor his life in his death. Would you afford me that blessed opportunity and then I'll give all of myself to you. That's not what he says. He says, you have explained how uncertain it is to follow you. If I'm going to follow you, I need more certainty than that. So let me wait until I get my inheritance And then when the circumstances are right, then I'll follow you. Y'all with me? See, you read this and you think he's asking a noble thing, which is why when you read the next verse, you're so offended by Jesus' response. Jesus says, verse 60, leave the dead to go bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Have you ever read this passage before and thought to yourself, Jesus is a jerk. That's mean. That's mean. If what the man is asking is help me grieve. But the man is not asking for grief support. He's not asking for a momentary reprieve as he takes care of tending to the family of whom he is now the head of the household. No, that's not what he's asking. He's saying, Jesus, I understand that you say for us to follow you is the right thing, but I'm not sure you can be trusted with the life I'm accustomed to living. So I'd rather make sure that I handle my business and then I'll give you more of me when I'm ready. And so Jesus says, that sounds like a a dead man walking. 
You care more about what this world has to offer you. You think the fleeting pleasures of this world, the income and inheritance and wealth that your father might afford you will protect you and save you and help you as you follow me. Do you think for one moment that what the world has to offer you is better than what I have to offer you? That's the lens through which he says, you better go let the dead bury the dead. He says, that's dead talking. And I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. When Jesus says those statements, this is the kind of spirit he's responding to. So let's put some skin on this. So many of us are here today and I'm telling you what it costs to Jesus, to follow Jesus. I'm inviting you to get serious in your faith and in your face and in your posture. You're like this, amen, pastor. I'm all the way in, brother. Yes, sir. I know you can tell these sinners get straight, bro. You and me, we've been walking with the Lord. That's good doctrine. I don't know why. <laughs> But I liked it. I stuck with it for a couple lines, didn't I? Dang all, dang all. Amen. Your face and your posture indicate to me that you're all on board, but your mind is already rationalizing on ways in which you can set the stage for you to feel more concerned and more secure before you serve Jesus. How do I know? Because when I ask you to tithe, you get frustrated. When I say you're supposed to give the first 10% of your gross increase, so let's explain it, the money before it's taxed. Well, the government takes 30%. Great. Give before the government gives their check. When I say that to you, your mind begins to explain to yourself why that doesn't work because it's uncertain. And so you say things like, when I make more money, then I will give more money. Or I say, you should join a service team. We need your help. In fact, we're growing at a pace where we're going to start inviting more people to serve. We're going to need more people and spark kids. Please, for the love of God, let your pastor say that just two or three times. Amen. We're going to need your support as we grow. Amen. And you're going to be saying to me in face and in posture, amen, brother, let's build this church. But on the inside, you're telling yourself how busy you are. Oh, if I could just get a little more time, then I would serve. Our lives are consumed with so many beautiful things that are not God things. And we respond with the same spirit that says, I'll follow you, but not yet. Not all the way. I mean, I need just a little. I got to get, I just, you know, our schedules are a little wild. And the, the, my, I'm waiting for that second check. I'm probably going to transfer jobs. And so when things get good, when, I'm, when I feel comfortable, then I'll get serious. And Jesus says, that's dead man talking. It's today. There's never been a better time for you to get serious about God than right now. You won't get more money in your bank account by waiting to be generous. Can I talk to all the givers in the place? They know good and well that once you start giving, the money comes in. We're not a prosperity church, but I'm going to tell you that God loves to prosper the church. Did you know that? I'm telling you that there are people in your midst right now who are givers, who gave when they had nothing, and God made them rulers over more so that they could give more. The same is true of people who serve. You think everybody in this room who gets up at four in the morning to serve at this church all day long is just doing nothing every other day of the week? Do you know how tired I was this morning after watching Michigan win its third Big Ten title in three years? I'm busy, baby! But never too busy when Jesus says it's time. Y'all with me? Don't wait, don't wait, don't wait, don't wait, don't wait. Don't think the circumstances have to get better. You move towards God and he makes the circumstances better. Y'all with me? And he says this. He says, um, let the bed, dead bury the dead. But you, you go and proclaim the kingdom. And what he's trying to do in this moment is break the curse of empire off of this man's life. He said, I need you to think bigger. Stop thinking small. You're waiting for your daddy's inheritance when I'm telling you my daddy owns the cattle on a thousand hills, brother. You better start thinking bigger. Stop thinking days and start thinking decades. And that's the rebuke that he gives to a man who, if you read the text all the way through, never actually said yes 
or no. Which is why in verse 61, the third man speaks up unprovoked. He says, I will follow you, Lord. He knows that this man is not just answered. He said, you should follow me. And the man says, let me go bury my father. And he says, no, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. And the man is dumbfounded and stricken because he's been found out. And he doesn't yet have an answer because he's not sure if he's ready to commit. And another man says, I'll follow you. I'm ready to commit. I want, hey, if he won't say yes, I'll say yes. But first, I want to go talk to my friends about it. Read your Bible. Verse 60, 61, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus replies to him and says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's the final wrong response that we see on this road. It's the look back. Jesus, I see that you have life and have it more abundant. But I'm not done with this yet. Can we just be really honest for a second? We blame our past for holding us back a lot of times, but our past has no power. It does not have the power to reach forward and pull us back. The reason your past holds you back, the reason you struggle moving forward is because you spend an awful lot of time wandering back to the same old thing. Oh, I want to I wanna get serious about Jesus. I'm telling you what, every time I come to church, I've just never felt anything like this before. It's, it's, just, it's, it's like the Bible opens for me in a way I've never seen it before. Usually I've been in church and it's been so confusing and I don't understand it. But, but, but when my pastor preaches, it's, it's like it's all there. It's so simple. And we worship and it's not hocus pocus. It's just real. There's people at this church that are real and they're nice to me. It's like what the Bible says it's supposed to be. And I want to know, I, I want more of it. And I also love to party. I, I, I want to walk with God all the days of my life. Are you ready? Except for Friday night. <laughs> Amen. Been there. Some of us are still there. You with me? Jesus' response to this is actually incredibly harsh as well the language that he uses about the look back. There's a picture of a man plowing. And I want you to see the picture. He says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow, he's talking about a, a hand plow. This would have been a, a handheld machine. It would have had two handles that came out like this. They joined together in one straight rod down into the ground, and they're affixed to a V-shaped plow. The plow is weighted or dragged by an oxen, and that plow is pushed into the ground, and when it moves forward, it plows a straight row in the ground into which seeds can be planted. And the picture that Jesus is, is painting is a man who puts his hand to the plow. Now, you need to see this picture so that you fully understand. The man does not push the plow. The effort for tilling the soil is done by the animal who pulls. Amen? But the man is given the opportunity to guide the plow, to steer the plow. It's actually a very simple job. The job is just to look forward. In fact, the job of a plowman is often given to farmhands because it's so simple, surely even on your first day, you won't mess this up. And Jesus says, any man who puts his hand to the plow and cannot continue to keep his focus straight ahead the entire time but gets lost and wanders back or wonders where he's been or considers the life he could have lived if he did not say yes to the farmer's invitation, that man will never plow a straight line. There will never be an opportunity for the ground to be tilled evenly and for seed to be sown righteously. This man, with even the most simple of tasks, has made for wrong rows that ruin 
ruined the plot and value of the land itself, and he's not fit to work in this kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. It's so simple. You mean to tell me that you say you love me, but you won't stop looking at the world that killed you? It's the simplest thing. Just trust me. Just follow me. Get up in the morning and say, Jesus, help. I will help you. I'm more than available. All I need you to do is walk behind me. I will pull. I will be the engine. I will plow. You steer. Do you see how harsh the response is? It's so simple. And if you can't stop looking back, you're going to ruin everything in your life. This man's spirit to follow is this. I will follow you. But first, first I want to go talk this over with my friends. First, I want to just enjoy a little bit of that. First, I want to, I just want to, I want one last hurrah. You ever done that? Well, I'm going to go to church next week. This week we got a graduation party. I'm but then, and if I was an old school preacher, I would say, you don't know if tomorrow will come. And Jesus says, a follow me attitude with a me first spirit is not a follow me spirit at all. If you think you can follow me and call it following, but also have a few firsts for you, what you're saying to Jesus is, I'm first. I'll follow you so long as I'm in the lead. And I don't know if you know how that works. But there are not two leaders. There are but one leader. And Jesus says, if you can't follow, I won't be your leader. It's tough language here. Amen? Jesus is talking to three men on this road who are hearing about his goodness and grace. And they're getting it wrong. What I love about the text is that upon first glance, you and I would think that his responses are so mean they're almost terminal. I mean, in the first one, he says, like, hey, this is harder than you think, which might sound like you can't cut it. In the second response, he says, let the dead go bury the dead, which sounds like Jesus doesn't have a, a heart for us. And in the third one, he calls the man unfit, which sounds like he's kind of pulled back the invitation altogether. But the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus is never taking back his invitation, but always setting the standard of the invitation. What he says to you and I is, follow me, my way. It's that simple. Trust me, my way. changes but neither does the invitation he's always calling us to him come come and even though these three men give the wrong response the invitation still stands and that's because God's good even when we're not that's because his grace is sufficient even when we are not. In fact, Jesus continues on this road, my God, making invitations until somebody finally gets it right. Do you remember last week how we talked about how Jesus had begun to turn his face toward Jerusalem? Do you remember I told you that right there from, from, from Luke 9, it, it started right there in verse 51, and I, I told you that from Luke 9, 51, all the way until Luke 19, 27. We, we call that part the middle ministry. That's the part in which Jesus is not, not in Galilee, but not in Jerusalem. It's this period in the Lucian gospel which Jesus is walking the road on the big mission. You remember we talked about this? This is the first message where Jesus is engaging with people as he's on the big message. Jesus personally engaged with someone in ministry moment as he's on the big mission road. You with me? 
Well, flip forward to verse to chapter 19. In 19, chapter 19, verse 27, that's when this whole part of Jesus' ministry ends. And so in this moment in chapter 9 where Jesus is interacting with these three men, it's the, it's the first time he has a ministry moment with people as he fixes his eyes on Jerusalem. But in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, he interacts with someone for the last time in a ministry moment before he enters Jerusalem. Do you see what I'm trying to picture for you? It's the bookends. It's this middle passage of, this, of the text, according to Luke, where it's all about preparation for the mission, mission. And there's a moment in the beginning where he talks to these three men, and there's a moment in the end where he talks to one man. These three men make the wrong response and then finally one makes the right response. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. That's a kind way of saying he was 5'9 or below. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house. Another invitation. Verse 6, so Zacchaeus hurried and came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, this is the crowd, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Come on, somebody. And Zacchaeus stood up in his own home with Jesus who was with him. And he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything else, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Do you see the picture? At the beginning of the mission, Jesus is making invitations and they're getting it wrong. And Jesus keeps walking and keeps making invitations and he keeps moving on mission and keeps making invitations. And it's not until the very end, this is the last person Jesus has a ministry moment before he walks into Jerusalem. This is the final invitation. Whew. And Jesus and Zacchaeus, <laughs> I mean, they have a moment. The Bible says that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. That means he's an enemy in the eyes of his own people. His job is to work on behalf of the Roman government to take taxes from the Jewish people. These are despised tax collectors. They are never revered as good. They're considered to be traitors, even when they're on the up and up. But the Bible says that Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's also rich, which means he's a corrupt tax collector. He's not just the bad guy. He's the worst guy. And he's short. That's also, that doesn't make him bad. That's not, he's not bad because he's short. Short people can be nice. That's fine. Short people are great. Amen. Stop it. The Bible says that he is a boy if anybody needs Jesus but doesn't. Boy, if anybody needs Jesus but doesn't think he's qualified. If anybody was bound to make the wrong response to Jesus, it's this guy. Verse 4 tells us, Zacchaeus, though he was short, he ran ahead of the crowd and he climbed up into a tree because he had heard that Jesus was going on this road and despite the fact that he was short, he wasn't going to let any limitations stop him from seeing Jesus. There was no but first in Zacchaeus' spirit. There is no undercommit in Z Zacchaeus' spirit. Zacchaeus, thank God, is finally desperate enough that he's like, I actually don't really care what it takes. And if I got to climb a tree, climb a house, or climb on that tall dude, I'm climbing to see Jesus. He doesn't let his circumstances get in the way. And so he climbs up. I preached this one time at a church, and I climbed up on the, like a, I wasn't invited back. But anyway. He doesn't let his circumstances stop him. And when Jesus sees him, 
He says, Zacchaeus. Oh, man, I'm, you know, I, As Jesus walks by, he looks up. I can't even, I can't even get through it. This man is short and he's low. Low in stature and low in spirit. No one's ever looked up to Zacchaeus. But when Jesus walks by, he lifts Zacchaeus up. It says he looks up to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus. There's been no introduction. Jesus knows him by name before they ever met. He says, I see you up there, bro. What are you doing? Come quick down here. Zacchaeus doesn't hesitate for a moment. There's nothing in him that says, well, hold on now. I got to climb down this tree. I'm going to have to work my way through the crowd. No, the Bible says Jesus said to come down. Zacchaeus jumps down from this tree, pushes his way through the crowd. Watch out, short tax collector coming through. And he walks right up to Jesus. And Jesus says, let's go have lunch at your house. Now, no one has ever gone to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. It's a terrible place. He's a bad man. He is unholy and unrighteous. And if you were caught hanging out with him, you too would have been considered a traitor and ostracized from the community. No one ever hangs out with Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, I see you up there, man. I know you. I want to be with you. Zacchaeus goes into his house and Jesus and him sit down. They begin to have dinner and the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus starts to do what you should rightfully do when you encounter the true and living God. He doesn't hold back and he just starts telling Jesus his whole story. Amen. This is how you know someone's having a real conversion. They just begin to tell. And then, and then I, was, I was stole when I was seven. I was at the store and I took three lipsticks. I don't even need lipsticks. And then in 12th grade I told everybody that Becky had cooties. She don't have cooties. You just start telling everybody. He just starts repenting to Jesus. He starts telling him this is what I've done wrong and this is all of the things that I've done. And it's not good, Jesus. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I, I, just, I just know that you're the Messiah and no one's ever seen me before. No one's ever called me by name before. No one's ever invited me to spend time with them before. You must be the true and living God. Here's me. I'm not much. And verse 9 says, Today, salvation has come to this house. It's the right response that elicits the desired response from Jesus. Hear me. Three wrong responses with harsh responses from Jesus. But first, but first, but first, Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. No one's unfit if they keep looking back. And then finally, one person gives the right response. I don't know any more than I want you just as you want me to have you. And Jesus responds and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We're going to do something we don't usually do in this church today, and we're going to worship in just a second. But I have a sense that this message is for so many of us today. Hear me. All three of the men in the first part of this message, in the crowd, were near Jesus. But that's not the same as following Jesus. Each one of them was close, but had something that held them back to make them far. One man put on a good show so that everyone could see how holy he was. One man wanted to create certainty in his own life before he followed Jesus. And one man just could not stop falling in love with the world. And Jesus makes the standard clear. Come just as you are, but come now. And today, I have a sense that that same call is coming out to you. Maybe you're here, and you've put on a really good show. To all of us, you're the most saved person in the church. But it's just that. It's a show. On the outside, you look good, but on the inside, it's a mess. You've overpromised. It's all a motive. You can't go back now. What would they think? Or maybe you're here and the truth of the matter is, is that you, you've got one foot in the Jesus camp and one out. You just can't commit. It just doesn't, I'm just, I'm just not ready. I'm not sure. I don't, I can't commit. 
or maybe you're here. And that world has got a hold on you. Alcohol, drugs, sex, money. It still tastes so good. Today is the day I want to invite you to finally give the right response. Not the right response so that we see you, but the right response to Jesus. No more faking. We're about to turn to a new year. Please don't pretend anymore. Say yes or say no. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. That's you today. And you're ready to do it all the way, 100%. No more half step. No one's going to look at you. But if you're here and you are completely convicted in your heart that today is the day you've got to completely say yes to Jesus, I'm going to invite you to right where you are, just stand to your feet. I'm not going to ask you to leave your seat. I'm just going to ask you to stand. No one is looking, but right here, right now in this room, if you have put on a good show, if you have been, unaf- been afraid to commit, and if you've been stuck and in love with the world, and you're done with that, would you stand to your feet right now all over the building? No one's looking. Everyone here, head bowed, eye closed. And we'll wait until everyone who needs to stand stands. You come to church every Sunday and everybody thinks you have it together and you're the only one that knows you don't have it together. You come to church every Sunday, but you can't stop thinking about the moment you get to leave this place and go back to what you love. You come to church every Sunday, but you don't do any of the things we ask you to do on Sunday because you're just not ready for it. And today you're ready. Would you stand? Father God, in the name of Jesus, so many of us are standing to our feet all over the room. We're done playing church. We've given the right response in just a million times, but in our heart, it's been wrong, 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 and we're done. We want you to make it right. Father, we surrender to you completely today. We want you on your terms. We follow you on your terms. No more holding us back. No more me first. It's you first in the name of Jesus. Right now, God, I ask that you would break our desire for worldly pleasures, that the taste for alcohol, drugs, sex, and success would die on the vine right now, that God, in the name of Jesus, you would remove from us the desire to take care of ourselves for fear that you can't take care of us. Give us the confidence to put our trust wholeheartedly in you and God. God, today, remind us that you're good and that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet all over the building? Would you join these today who've said yes to Jesus wholeheartedly and let's worship in celebration of the God of the right response. Thanks for joining Be The Light Podcast with lead pastor C.B. Barthlow. Visit our website at denverbeacon.org. To download our Beacon app, text Beacon to 97000. Once again, text Beacon to 97000. Whatever you do, please remember to be the light. Let's go! Let's go!